And this is dedicated to the American Congress and in the hopes that somebody helps the United States Navy. Clearly, that their leadership issues are beyond their own capabilities. And this is a $2 billion warship that was undergoing a $250 million upgrade, a quarter of a billion, that went up in flames out of utter incompetence. So this is dedicated to Congress, right? You need to do something about it. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> that's a fact by the way <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the weather. Currently it is mostly sunny and seventy in Quantico. Down the coast at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point it is sunny and sixty nine. In the California desert, it is sunny and 50 in 29 Palms. Camp Pendleton, sunny and 56. So cold on the coast. I can attest to that. In Hawaii, dark cloudy and 67 at Camp Smith. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 73. In the Philippines, dark cloudy, 81. And in Darwin, clear dark and 84. At the home of All Marine Radio, 
Fair skies and 53 degrees. Looking for a high of 71 today. Yeah, 73 tomorrow, 69 on Friday, 69 on Saturday, and 70 on Sunday. So that is a look at your weather here on a, uh, what day is today? Whatever the hell day today is. Wednesday. Um, and so let me take you through this article. Yeah, and this is, let me tell you, this is some ugly shit, just so you know. Uh, headline, and this is in USNI News. Uh, headline is this, long chain of failures left sailors unprepared to fight the USS Bonhomme Richard fire investigation finds. And again, by Sam Legrone and Gidget Fuentes, longtime writers uh, about the things Department of Defense uh, and the Marine Corps and the Navy. Um, I'll read you things that I've, Highlighted, all right. Um, the investigation into the fire aboard the Bonhomme Richard was overseen by former U.S. Third Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Scott Kahn, who found that the two-year-long $249 million maintenance period rendered the ship's crew unprepared to fight the fire the service said was set by a crew member. Quote, Although the fire was started by an act of arson, the ship was lost due to an inability to extinguish the fire, Con wrote. In the 19 months executing the ship's maintenance availability, repeated failures allowed for the accumulation of significant risk and an inadequately prepared crew, which led to an ineffective fire response. That's a quote from the report. Beyond the ship, Con concluded that training and oversight failures throughout the fleet from Naval Sea Systems Command, the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Naval Surface Force Pacific Fleet, and several other commands contributed to the loss of the $2 billion warship. $2 billion, right? And that's in addition to the $250 million that was the upgrade, right? Khan sing- sing- singled out 36 individuals, including five admirals, who were responsible for the loss of the ship due to either their actions on July 12th or lack of oversight leading up to the alleged arson. Quote, The training and readiness of the ship's crew were deficient. They were unprepared to respond. Integration between the ship and supporting shore-based firefighting organizations was inadequate, wrote 3rd Fleet Commander Samuel, Admiral Samuel Paparo in his August 3rd endorsement of the investigation. Quote, there was an absence of effective oversight that should have been identified, that should have identified the accumulated risk and taken independent action to ensure readiness to fight a fire. Common to the failures evident in each of the broad categories was a lack of familiarity with the requirements and the procedures, noncompliance at all levels of command. Let me read that again. Common to the failures evident in each of these broad categories was a lack of familiarity with requirements and procedures, non-compliance at all levels of command. It's a pretty stunning statement, right? But not surprising, given the, the level of competency we've seen in the United States Navy. So if you can't, if you can't drive ships, right, and you can't do amphibious operations, and you clearly can't 
you know, do the things you're supposed to do. So when you're in port undergoing a maintenance period, you know what you do? You support the maintenance period. You know what the most dangerous thing that can happen to you during a maintenance is? Fire. So, I mean, if you're a good ship, you exercise those muscles, right? Not so much. The article goes on. Khan highlighted the lack of adherence to the Navy's special, op- special procedures for fire safety. And this is really important, okay? Because this kind of a fire happened in 2012, set by an arsonist on the attack submarine USS Miami. Okay, so Khan highlighted the lack of a- adherence to the Navy's special procedures for fire safety which the service put in place after a 2012 arsonist fire resulted in the loss of the attack sub USS Miami, SSN 755, as a major cause of the fire. Quote, the considerable similarities between the fire on the, on the Bonhomme Richard and the USS Miami fire of eight years prior are not the result of the wrong lessons being identified in 2012. It is the result of failing to rigorously implement the policy changes designed to preclude reoccurrence, Khan wrote in his report. So what that means is, right, the USS Miami gets set on fire by somebody. Okay? And it's a complete loss. The Navy investigates it just like they did here. They make a series of recommendations. Right? And those recommendations go unheeded, unemployed. Right. I, and again, I, at what point does this become criminal? When it passes $2 billion? The loss of nine, you know, eight Marines and a sailor wasn't enough to make get any discipline. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if, if Third Fleet Commander gets out his exacto knife again and absolves everybody of this. Oh, you know, everybody tried hard. The article talks about the uh, seaman apprentice who allegedly set the, uh, the Bonhomme Richard on fire. His Article 32 hearing, is his, which it would be his arraignment, right, is expected to be held this month in San Diego. Then the, the article talks about first day failures. And, and listen to this. Some of this stuff is stunning, Right. The arsonist could not have picked a better time to cause maximum damage to the ship, according to the investigation. More than three-quarters of the ship's firefighting equipment was in an unknown status. Sunday morning featured a small crew aboard the ship, and watch sections were turning over. The senior-most officer on board was standing watch as the command duty officer for the first time. The fire began in the lower V spaces. The first hint of trouble was just after 8 o'clock when colors was executed, right? Which is when the, the flag goes up, we salute, blah, 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 blah. Just after 8 a.m., a junior sailor walked through the upper vehicle deck, which is known as the upper V, right? The upper vehicle deck. As she headed out to a vending machine after her watch, she noticed a hazy white fog in the lower vehicle deck around 8.10. But she didn't report it. The investigation were found found, noting that because she did not smell smoke, she continued to her birthing area. 
around 115 of the 138 sailors swapping duty on the ship that morning were just a fraction of the 1,000-plus ship's company. Around that time, another sailor who stopped at a side port door on the upper V to chat with a sentry observed white smoke coming from the lower V ramp into the upper vehicle ramp, according to the report. One of them ran up the ramp and through the hangar to reach the quarter neck deck, telling the officer of the deck about the smoke. This is quoting from the report. Numerous sources agree to having heard a rapid ringing of a bell, but disagree as to whether the casualty was announced as white smoke, black smoke, or fire, as well as the location of the casualty, lower V, upper V, or hangar bay, the investigation found. At 8.20 in the morning, the petty officer of the watch noted in his log, fire reported in the lower V. The duty fire marshal told investigators he received the report Okay, so there's a duty fire marshal on the ship. Okay, is that, this is their job. And you're going to hear how horribly they did their job. The duty fire marshal told investigators he received a report of smoke in the upper V and went to investigate, then called the damage control central watch supervisor to tell the ship's company about the casualty after seeing smoke pouring out of the lower V. The OOD, the officer of the deck, stated that the damage control central watch standard, so this is a space where there's somebody whose job it is to do damage control if something like this happens. The damage control watch standard informed him that they already had made a 1MC announcement. Having not heard any announcement, at 820, the OOD called away the casualty over the 1MC. So... The officer of the deck calls down to damage control. This person says they've already made an announcement over the 1MC, which is the PA system aboard the ship that broadcasts to everybody. The officer of the deck says, I haven't heard it, and he or she makes a, an announcement at 8.20. So you can see the confusion and the incompetence already. The report found the officer told investigators he delayed calling away the casualty due to the possibility of a benign reason for the smoke, such as starting an emergency diesel generator. Wanted to make sure it was an actual fire. That one MC call was the first time the ship's command duty officer, who was in his stateroom, learned of the fire. So this is the guy in overall control of the ship, and he hears about it over the one MC. Now, again... I'll take you back to the Somerset investigation. The bridge on the Somerset finds out there's AEVs in the water when? As they return back from San Clemente Island. When the officer of the deck sees them. And that's when he tells the commanding officer of the Somerset, hey, there's Amtrak's in the water. And this is the kind of shit that, again, is common in, 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 in all of this stuff. Utter incompetence. Minutes later, crews aboard the destroyers Russell and Fitzgerald, right? We all know, have heard of the Fitzgerald because of its issues, which were also beard at Pier 1, reported black smoke coming from the Bonhomme Richard. Both destroyers assembled their duty sections and began equipping rescue and assistance teams with a team of 11 from the Russell and 8 from the Fitzgerald reaching the Bonhomme Richard's hangar. 
Neither team was directed to join in the fire attack, according to the investigation. Quote, in those early minutes, the sailors had no radio, so they used their own cell phones to communicate, the lead investigator found. And the 1MC did not work in many areas of the ship, to include damage control central. And there was a lack of urgency when initial responders from the ship's force descended into the lower V. No one shared the same understanding of what firefighting capability was online, contributing to their failure to apply agent to the fire or to set boundaries, which enabled smoke and heat to intensify. Attack teams had trouble finding serviceable fire stations. Listen to this. In fact, 187 of the ship's 216 fire stations, 87.5% were inoperable were in inoperable equipment status condition at the time of the fire, the report said. Now, if somebody doesn't go to jail for that, when you report this is the number one threat to a ship is fire, 87.5% of the fire stations on that ship are inoperable. Several fire teams of sailors ventured to the upper V and found hot spots but no fire. And as sailors began to lay hoses down to attack the spreading fire, they encountered fire stations with missing fire hoses and broken fittings. Moreover, there was no concentrated direction or announcement from D.C. Central. D.C. Central is where this fire gets fought from. Okay. Quote, the D.C. Central watch supervisor stated that neither he nor the EDO, the engineer, the engineer duty officer had any idea of how bad the fire was until later events forced them to evacuate D.C. Central. So yeah, so the whole time this thing brews, they're clueless. At no point did either the D.C. Central watch supervisor or the engineering duty officer attempt to start any additional equipment or activate Aquinos Film Foaming Foam, the AFFF firefighting system. And this is quoting directly from the investigation. Despite the lack of reports of any announcements, despite the lack of reports that any of announcements were received or acted upon, neither the EDO or the DC Central Watch Supervisor sought confirmation that their announcement were, their announcements were broadcast. Investigators found, though the senior EDO in the duty section, name redacted did not hear any 1MC announcements from D.C. Central, he did not proceed to D.C. Central to determine whether the EDO was attempting to execute control of the firefighting effort. So here you have the person that supervises that is hearing nothing being broadcast, and they don't go down to take a look. They don't go down to unfuck that. Worse, the ship's installed AFFF system weren't put into action, in part because the maintenance was not properly performed to keep it ready, and in part because the crew lacked familiarity with the capability and its availability. Many of the ship's hatches and doors, a critical first line of defense to isolate a fire and slow the spread, couldn't be shut without disconnecting temporary utilities in place for maintenance availability work. Now, let me tell you this. When you're on a ship, that's normal, okay? These utilities that are being used, you know, as things get fixed in the ship and modified. But part of what you do is and part of the fire marshal's job is to make sure in the case of a fire people know what to do where do you disconnect these things right because if we have to contain a fire we've got to set we've got to close certain hatches and make them airtight right not so much 
Uh, Again, quoting from the investigation, two crew members told Naval Investigative Service, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, that, quote, they stated it was not possible to set boundaries in the lower V because it was such a large space. Additionally, they reported the fire spread too fast to set effective boundaries. However, most duty Section 6 sailors aboard at this time stated in interviews that they knew neither how to set boundaries nor how to operate the quick disconnects. Limited quick disconnecting training was conducted early in the availability but was not repeated or reemphasized, which gives you some idea of how little emphasis that firefighting during a maintenance period was given by the commanding officer, right, and the leaders aboard the Bonhomme Richard. That's my comment. The article goes on. At 9 a.m., two, two fire teams, including one from the USS Russell, were told, were told to evacuate the hangar because of smoke, and they watched numerous Bonhomme Richard sailors evacuate the ship. Captain Thorman, the ship's captain, reached the base at 9.05 and met with federal fire and San Diego fire chiefs at the incident command post set up on Pier 2. The fire response was already substantial as subsequent fire alarms broadcast calls for additional help. The call for mutual aid prompted local fire departments to send crews to the base. But an hour into the fire, no water or retardant had been laid onto the fire, even though federal fire crews had laid down their hose line towards the lower V. The fire had spread unabated for nearly two hours before the first firefighters, crews from the San Diego Fire Department, poured water onto the flames. That happened at 9.51. Speechless. Absolutely speechless. That happened at 9.51 on the upper vehicle deck where the city firefighters on their own initiative, on their own initiative, attacked a fire along the space's starboard side. That would be right to all you land people, right? They were unfamiliar with the ship's layout. They told investigators they nevertheless reached one area of the fire and fought the blaze for at least 30 minutes before conditions deteriorated with the fire's continuing multi-finger spread. By then, the billowing smoke had turned heavy and black. One city fi- firefighter told his teams, this compartment is about to blast. At 10.37, the on-scene command ordered all firefighting teams to evacuate the ship. At 10.50, Approximately 90 seconds after the last firefighter had, defa- had, had departed the ship, a massive explosion occurred. The ensuing shockwave knocked people down on the pier, blew debris across to the Fitzgerald, and massive smoke billowed high into the sky across the San Diego Bay. This is a quote from the report. Quote, This explosion occurred after more than two hours of efforts where none of the ship's installed firefighting systems were employed and no effective action was taken by any organization involved to limit the spread of the smoke of the fires, the lead investigator wrote in the executive summary. When the ship was evacuated, without personnel on board, available installed systems, or electrical power, the fires on the Bonhomme Richard were unimpeded. Subsequent attempts to regain a foothold aboard relied on ad hoc strategies, delivering too little firefighting agent to combat the pace of the fire spread, through the first day's efforts, agent was never applied to the seat of the fire and the opportunity to do so was lost once the fire spread beyond the perimeter of the lower V and across the entire ship. 
next section of this is called bureaucratic, bureaucratic fires. Bureaucratic divisions hampered firefighting efforts, the investigation found. For five days, the ship and the federal fire worked from separate command posts on Pier 2 without clear indications to others who was in charge of the firefighting mission. After San Diego Fire's initial response and fire attack, the fire crews did not re-enter the ship after it was evacuated. San Diego County Fire Department officials said they would support from the pier but not re-enter the ship, citing their manual that reads, quote, Activities that pose a significant risk to firefighters shall only be taken when there is potential to save lives. But it prompted frustration and disagreements with federal fire and Navy over the city department's safety policies. After discussing it with the Expeditionary Strike Group commander, the federal fire chief said he told the San Diego County fire chief to leave, quote, if they were not going to provide meaningful assistance to fight the fire. The noticeable, the, and you, so you can imagine the scene on the pier, right? Now, San Diego Fire Department and everybody who has a mutual aid agreement with them that showed up, they leave. The noticeable departure of San Diego Fire Department crews and the vehicles was followed by that of other localities who had responded to the mutual aid call in the large-scale regional fire response, further dampening the mood on the waterfront amid growing emergency in front of them. Quote, Uncertainty over whether San Diego County Fire Department was specifically released or left on their own led to confusion and disappointment among Bonham Richard leadership when municipal firefighting units began departing. With the afternoon arrival of other ships' fire teams to assist, more sailors joined Federal Fire in chasing down the fire as it spread that afternoon. At 6.30 p.m., the fire was burning throughout the entire length of the ship with approximately three decks on fire to include equipment on the flight deck and the ship's superstructure. At 6.55 p.m., a second explosion jolted the ship. With the fire's continuous spread, the Navy's top concern was the failing integrity of the ship's superstructure, a warping of the flight deck, and collapse of the cavernous hangar bay. That evening, in an agreement between the Navy's Southwest Regional Commander and the San Diego Mayor, San Diego Fire Department helicopters flew a mission to, access, to assess the, sh- the fire's impact. And thermal imaging showed 1,200-degree fires burning in the superstructure. A few hours later, the first two Navy Seahawks began dropping salt water on the ship in an aerial fire attack that totaled 1,600 gallons dropped over four days. By day two, the fire remained out of control in the ship's interior spaces as firefighting efforts expanded with the drone equipped with thermal imaging helping to identify hotspots. By the third day, holes were cut in those spaces to enable the employment of AFFF and high-intensity fire pumping equipment shot seawater into the flight deck and the superstructure. Meanwhile, all the water pouring into the ship required a massive dewatering effort to offset the ship and the shift and list of the sh- of the ship driven by compartments filled with water. Okay, so what you're talking about is as it takes on all this water, the ship starting to list. By 10:30 p.m. on the 15th, firefighting waters had accumulated in the O1 and the O2 level. They had shifted significantly that the ship experienced a rapid shift from a 2.1 degree starboard list, so it's listing to the right, and then it shifts to a 
five degree port lift, right? I mean, that's massive when you're on a ship. This ship happened over a 90 second period. Firefighting teams aboard the ship were evacuated. The next afternoon, July 16th, the Expeditionary Strike Group 3 commander declared the fire was finally out. The overall command and control of the fire response was initially chaotic, but it improved over time through ad hoc decisions and assignments. Although the COXO and Command Master Chief and the Chief Engineer and the Damage Control Assistant were all present on the pier side prior to the explosion, they failed to establish command and control of the situation and did not lead any action to integrate fire response efforts. Instead, Commander Expeditionary Strike Group 3, the ship's operational commander, who has no assigned role or responsibility in response to a shipboard fire during a maintenance availability, stepped into a command and control vacuum to align the various ship installations and external organizations by employing a makeshift emergency response organizational structure. Amazing. Amazing. Now, the last piece of this is about the USS Miami, okay, which is the, um, which is the submarine that was set on fire. And there's a picture of it, right? USS Miami enters dry dock to begin an engineering overhaul at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Maine in 2012. In 2012, the Navy lost the Miami to arson while the ship was undergoing maintenance. The subsequent fire resulted in an uncontrollable blaze and cut the life of the submarine short after the Navy determined it would take $750 million to repair the submarine. As a result of the fire, Naval Sea Systems Command crafted a new set of procedures to prevent fires when ships were in maintenance periods. NAVC Technical Publication Industrial Ship Safety Manual for the Fire Prevention and Response, known as 8010 Manual. In response to this fire, Commander U.S. Forces Command convened a fire review panel to determine how Miami could be lost in a shipyard environment despite readily available fire prevention programs and resources. The critical takeaway from the Miami investigation as stated by the U.S. Fleet Forces Command endorsement was that accepting a reduced margin to fire safety when a ship enters an industrial environment was a key driver to the policies and procedures that developed, they developed to prevent a similar outcome. But think about that. 87.5% of the firefighting stations aboard the Bonhomme Richard were out of commission. And, and this just happened nine years ago. And you think that going into that, that maintenance you know, period you know, hey, we need to get smart about this, right? We still command this ship, whether it's at sea or in dry dock or wherever. We're still responsible for it, and we have a job to do here. Not so much. While the 8010 manual set up procedures to prevent another fire, like the one that destroyed the Miami, investigators found that the Navy did not follow the rules outlined in the document. Quote, in the last five years, policy changes and corrective actions to address the fire safety 
were inconsistently implemented or failed to be implemented across Navy maintenance organization, training, training, implementation, and compliance with the 8010 manual in private shipyards was not representative of maintenance on nuclear vessels being executed in public yards. Additionally, there was a lack of procedural compliance and effective oversight within the Naval Sea Systems Command, Navy Installations Command, and Navy Surface Force Pacific Fleet, Con wrote. Investigators found that most sailors aboard the Bonhomme Richard were not familiar with the updates to the 8010. Quote, those personnel had general, a general unfamiliarity with the content of the 8010 manual and co- commented that their training had not prepared them to combat a fire of the magnitude having occurred aboard the Bonhomme Richard. So let me, um, let me call Will. And I, I just want, again, so, again, you read that, and I think they do a great job portraying what happened. I mean, I, I'm anxious to see the, the, the investigation and, uh, and what comes out of it. And so, um, but again, this is just another version of what we've already seen. And, um, and, and we've already seen this often enough. You know, it's, I, again, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. So um, let me give Will a call and uh, see if he picks up. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? <clears throat> well, I was better before I listened to the last 10 minutes of the show. Yeah, I I don't I mean I'm honestly speechless. Um you it, the the news is bad enough and then you um and then you come to grips with the fact that you know this happened in Maine in 2012. The Navy specifically addressed it, right? You're a commanding officer, your ship's going into a maintenance period, right? An extended maintenance period. That's you're going to get a, you know, quarter of a billion dollar upgrade to your ship. It is one of the most it is maybe the most formidable, am, you know, big deck amphib ship in, in the American Navy. And what is your focus? What What is your job in, in, in that period? And uh, I guess the answer is we don't have one. Uh, because when you think about that, the, the fire marshal on the, on the, on the Bon Armour Shard, if you understand what your job is and what the greatest ship, what the greatest threat to the ship is, and you have 87.5% of the firefighting stations that are out of commission? I, I don't know what to say, but again, this is another installment of the things that we've seen from collisions, you know, to, to the Somerset. Um, um, and, and so your thoughts, Will, on a, not just this incident, but this, this recurring theme of incidents um, relative to the United States Navy. Yeah, I, I would say I'm interested to actually read the investigation because what we got is the news report because I want to find out if anything went right at the micro-tactical level all the way up to all the systems and, and the support systems because on the news article, nothing went right, period. And so what, you know, I read that, I read that article last night. What I was thinking about today is have you ever been afraid to go to sea on a Navy ship? 
I mean, I was on DD 945 in the summer of 1982, Isaac W. Hall. Hull had been the most heavily armed destroyer in the world at one point. It had an eight-inch gun on the forward mount, where normally it would have been a five-inch gun. So it spent like a year on Yankee Station off Vietnam with an eight-inch gun on it. And as a result, by the summer of 1982, that eight-inch gun had basically loosened all the seams and rivets throughout the ship. So we took out about 60 gallons a minute of water while we were underway. And... The crew, you might describe as being marginal at best. This was the summer of 1982. So it's post-Vietnam and it's pre-Reagan. But I can't say that I was afraid to go to sea on that ship. You know, I went on board uh, Kearsarge and we sailed from Norfolk to, uh, to the coast of Africa we went down there to Brazzaville, Congo, and, and we were going single ship. And when you cut across the Atlantic that way, it's really lonely out there. I don't think we saw another vessel for like nine out of the 16 days we were in transit. And the weather got a little bit sporty. When you can feel Kearsarge, I think it's LHD3, big ship, 900 and some feet long. When you can feel that thing moving around, Right. That's some pretty big sea. But I can't say I was afraid. But I got to tell you. Would you feel comfortable being asleep in the middle of the ocean on board a Navy ship today? I mean, look at the trend line of the Navy. Don't give up the ship. I've not yet begun to fight. I do not wish to be associated with a ship that does not sail fast, for I intend to take her in harm's way. Admiral Stockdale and a Hanoi Hilton bashing his face against the wall so that they can't make a propaganda film about him. And the current trend line is small boats that surrender in the Persian Gulf. McCain and Fitzgerald, Fat Albert scandal. USS Miami burning, Somerset, Bonham Richard. And, and what have you heard from the Navy leadership? What have you heard? Ray Mabus was a secretary of the Navy, I think, for eight years. It, might, you know, it seemed like a long time in the Obama administration. And he's most known for what we used to call the OHI the one hat initiative so that female sailors wore the same covers that male sailors did. The other thing he was known for is naming a ship after Cesar Chavez and another one after Gabby Giffords. That's what the Navy was doing for eight years. And the current Navy Ask the American public what they've heard of the Navy. I, I bet almost nothing. Anyone who reads the news the only thing that you can think of in the Navy is a CNO campaigning for people to read books about critical race theory. It, it just, are there serious people in the Navy? Now, it seems like the vice admiral that wrote this investigation, um, based on the article, uh, didn't pull any punches. Uh, it seems like they got into the detail and they called the spades spades. 
when they go back and cite uh, the the what had come out of the Miami investigation and how it had not been properly implemented, and they get into the complete lack of training, uh, the complete lack of organization, and then just the petulant attitude. Um, San Diego Fire has a different doctrine than U.S. Navy Fire and maybe Federal Fire, and that San Diego Fire says we're not going to take undue risk to people. Okay, you're telling me that if you're attempting to integrate a major firefighting operation, you still can't find a way to use their capabilities? So it just, it's, it's epic at every level, and it's disturbing because... We are, in fact, a maritime nation. We really don't need an army most of the time. But without a Navy, you're going to need an army all the time. The Navy is out there constantly. And if our Navy is suspect, uh, the whole idea of deterring conflict and competing economically, diplomatically, et cetera, that whole equation goes upside down. If our Navy is seen as being incompetent, unserious, uh, incapable. And um, it's just, it's hard to draw different conclusions right now. So now I'm even more depressed. What? So what happens? I mean, we've watched this too many times. It's like, you know, so now we're going to all, you know, jump up and down and spin around again. And then it'll go back to leaving the Navy to, you know, unscrew themselves. Because clearly, you know, clearly what they're what they're doing is is not working. So, I mean, is does Congress have to get involved in this? Does I mean, does this have to get outside the Navy? Somebody's got to take over become the conservator of the of the United States Navy and say no this is what we're doing and uh, and and you're gonna have to jump through these hoops and until you do that we're not gonna you know release you to your own devices again I mean I mean how do we turn this around I guess is the question because it's just you know again and and, and I said earlier in the program um, how how severe this is is eight marines and a sailor are lost and the commanding officer of the uss somerset fundamentally ignorant about ignorant about his own job right is somehow or other spared his relief and then any disciplinary action by the commanding officer of the third fleet who wrote an endorsement for this investigation as well so at some point when do we recognize that the navy is incapable of fixing themselves and somebody else has to get involved in this because what you're looking about what you're just talking about is the inability to be out there and the lead organization in a fight against the chinese will be the american navy yes yeah, so you would think that that um the secretary, secretary of defense at one point would be pretty interested in this, these kinds of things. Um, and you would think that Congress would be, but, but I mean, 
who in Congress has, over the last 10 years, has shown um, a thoughtful, statesmanlike, strategic, visionary approach to national defense, let alone to the U.S. Navy. Um, the congressmen uh, that that you see involved in the Navy are basically, they're hacking for their district. Um, and, and even if, if you remember the hearing that was held about um, the, the AAV sinking, you know, there was a little bit of ranting that went on in there, but there was no push by the chairman of that committee on any detail. I mean, the Marine Corps basically got up there and said, yeah, all our people lie about our readiness and we need to, we probably need to work on that. And, you know, we're the victims here because we've been at war and no congressman pushed back on any of that. And so I just, uh, again, Mac, who in Congress do you see as being a sort of strategic, bipartisan, bipartisan visionary in regards to defense that has a stature to talk about this uh, in, in a in a in a national sort of way. Yeah, the only the only person that I know that had that kind of stature was John McCain, and he's obviously he's dead. Elaine Luria, right, was the most formidable um, questioner in terms of asking the hardest questions in the most detailed way. She is a junior representative from a district that, that represents what Hampton Roads and, yeah, and, and she's and a Norfolk. shipbuilding advocate. She's right. a shipbuilding advocate. Right. That's what she was doing in that committee. So, but in terms of that has the national, you know, um, the national, uh, recognition that would be taken seriously. I don't. Uh, I don't know. I See, don't I've know. got to look up who the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee is. I don't even know, and that shows you. Read. It's who? Read, isn't it? Uh, it was. It was. It was. Inhofe, Imhoff, whatever the hell his name is. I, yeah. And then when the Democrats took over the Senate. Oh, uh, yeah, read uh, from, uh, uh, I think he's somewhere up there in the uh, Northeast, right? Yes. Same guy. Yeah. So uh, he is uh, not, you know, out there on the wacko, crazy left side of that party um yeah jack reed jake reed something like yeah, that it's jack reed. What, yeah here's here's a text message question seriously what would john mccain be doing if he were alive today yeah but you know what mccain um listen go back and watch well you don't have time but if you watch a testimony in front of McCain, McCain is sort of an irascible old man there. Um, he left the Navy, basically, you know, he got shot down, was he a lieutenant or lieutenant commander? And then he got promoted to captain while he was in captivity. 
then he uh, went to the Hill to be, uh, you know, on the Navy uh, side of Office of Legislative Affairs. Uh, then he goes out and I think he became a staffer and then he eventually runs for Congress. Right. And so while McCain, I think, is seen as the uh, um, the, uh, you know, the heavyweight in public, he's not a heavyweight in the fact that he's thoughtful uh, and could drive um, things. You know, go back to someone like uh, Les Aspen and then... Uh, I'm thinking of the guy uh, who was here in Missouri um, was uh, was in a hask for a long time, uh, but drove things internally. McCain was not that kind of guy. Now, would he have ranted and raved about the Navy uh, and asked hard questions? You know, I, I don't even know. He might have, and it might have been good theater, but I don't know that McCain would have actually gotten on this thing. Well, let me because tell you, much have, of this, de- yeah. right, much of this demise took place while he's alive, right? Yeah, exactly. He was there for years and years and years. I mean, um, you know, here, the Miami here, here, thing was nine years ago. Here, Yeah, let me read this to you. Um, this is from somebody whose daughter is a, an officer in the surface warfare United States Navy. She tells me the entire Navy is like this. Sloppy, sloppy, lazy, and way too incompetent people being pushed into positions of responsibility. And then he finishes finishes with this. Watch the CNO's birthday message again and ask yourself, does this guy inspire change? And so... um, yeah, it's, you know, the question, how does this change? How many more of these kind of events, this $2 billion warship that has a tr- strategic impact, the loss of which has a strategic impact on on, on the nation? Yeah, and, and again, I want to read the investigation right. because they... they uh, Are you sure? Well, I, I, I think I do because I think that this guy may have taken a wood to him. You know, um, they had great excuses. It's a maintenance period and all these other things and blah, blah, blah. But anyone who knows anything knows that we actually have procedures set up for these specific things. And I think he points out they didn't follow. Um, but it would be nice in the opinions, uh, if they get, if he's willing to raise the dialogue a little bit, I don't think they will. But the dialogue from someone like, uh, you know, Compact Fleet should be, uh, yeah, our trend line isn't good out here in Compact Fleet. Um, we have we have fundamental issues that these different incidents all seem to have in common. And here's what they are. Big one of that's going to be leadership and accountability. Um, Can you imagine, 
you're the CEO of the ship and you don't immediately go in. Look, this is a disaster. It's a disaster in front of your eyes. Okay. But your job as the CEO of that ship is I am in charge. I do everything to save this ship. San Diego firefighters, crew on board uh, Fitzgerald, I think, came over there, and I forget the name of the other uh, ship. Uh, import people. The Russell? I'm, yeah, I'm in charge of everything here. I'm making the decisions. And he seems to, like, abrogate that responsibility. And look, if the ESG commander comes in, uh, hey, boss, I'm actually in charge here. Here's the help I need from you. What I don't need you to do is to be in charge here. But, I mean, CEOs of Navy ships used to be so jealous of their prerogatives because they were going to be held accountable. So you're jealous of your prerogatives because you want to make the decisions that you are going to be held accountable for. And the CEO of this ship did not seem to have that fire in his belly, and if COs of ships have lost that, then it's hard to imagine that they would not want to wish to be associated with a ship that does not sail fast because they intend to go to harm's way. I got a feeling they wouldn't give that command, enemy in sight, all ahead flank, left full rudder, prepare for torpedo attack. Yeah, that's Ernest Evans. The um, that Will is quoting there on on a number on a on a few occasions, and let me just read from the report again. Quote: Although the COXO and Command Master Chief and the Chief Engineer, and the DCA, right, were all present on the pier prior to the explosion, they failed to establish command and control of the situation. Did not lead action to integrate fire response effort. Instead. Commander Expeditionary Strike Group 3, the ship's operational commander. So that means when the ship goes to sea, this guy or woman, right, they take command. The ship's operational commander, who has no assigned role or responsibility in response to a shipboard fire during a maintenance availability, stepped into a command and control vacuum to align the various ship installation and external organizations by empowering a makeshift emergency response organizational structure. Yeah. I mean, another Navy quote, right, from Ernest King. Something along the lines of, when the time gets tough, they send for the son of a bitches. And so they sent for Ernest King. Who's the Ernest King out there right now? Who's the Ernest King that's going to say, this is the greatest Navy in the world. And it's also all of our favorite Navy in the whole world. And we are not serving the nation. You know, look, it's only the defense of the country. I don't know if people should get excited about it or not. Well, I'll tell you what, um, pretty interesting little dichotomy in the last seven days, right? The Chinese shoot an ICBM that goes around the Earth and then launches a hypersonic missile with a nuclear warhead on it. Misses the target by 25 miles. I don't know that that's significant when you have a nuclear warhead on it, right? You only have to come close, right? 
and you'll pretty much do the job. Um, and so that dichotomy of an emerging China that gets stronger, what is that quote? Every day Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger, and every day I sit in Saigon, I get weaker from apocalypse. Now, Martin Sheehan, great quotes, right? Well, that's what we've watched in the last week. At some point, does the country sober up and say we have to get serious about operational excellence? And I don't want to hear when you come to speak to us about anything until we talk about operational excellence. I don't, again, we've, we've talked about this, but you watch their testimony. And, I, and now I'm curious. I will go back and look at the CNO's message Right, his birthday message. What is he saying? Is he talking about, you know, the United States Navy being great, operational excellence, or what is he talking about? Our quality of life, you know, getting your GI Bill rights, you know, improved. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm, you know, on my the only social media I have is LinkedIn, and I'm not signed up for a bunch of these, but people I'm connected with comment on certain things, and I got to tell you, the flow out of the CNOs thing is about. Um, you know, his recent statements, we, we want to have the most diverse Navy in the world. I don't give a fuck how diverse the Navy is. I don't care if it's 100% purple-haired Martians. I want the best Navy in the world. Um, but that's where the CNO is. And it's, a, it's you know, every month there's a whatever, whoever's month it is, you know, there's always, every month has a theme of some disadvantaged minority. And so the CNO's feed is a constant stream of these things. And it's, God damn it, you know? And, and I think of Colin Powell, for God's sakes, right? Colin Powell can't exist in modern America, according to these people. You know, Colin Powell went to a school that was completely based on merit. City College in New York, when Colin Powell went there, every kid who graduated from a high school in New York City could take an exam. A certain low percentage of them got into City College. And then they proceeded to flunk out a big chunk of them in the first semester. City College at that time was known as Harvard on the Hudson. It was the number one public institution in the country. Colin Powell was a poor black kid. I believe his father uh, and his mother, but I'm not sure both, at least one, were Jamaican immigrants. Correct. And he just through merit got into the hardest college in the country to get into, public school, graduated, was in the ROTC there. I think they were called the Persian Rifles. Went to Vietnam early. I think he, as a major, he was a division G3 of the biggest division in Vietnam. I think he was a major then. And he rose out of the great heights without, I don't think anyone saying, looking at him and looking at him based on an outward benign characteristic, his race, and saying we should do something. I think what they saw was a pretty smart, hardworking guy. And so I don't understand our obsession with these things. And that obsession is not what caused 
the fire and the disaster on Bonham Rashar. But in the public realm, how much of our national security leaders talked about those things as opposed to we need we have a we have a blood oath with the American people to be the absolute finest military there is anywhere. Because we know if we're the best ever, it means we probably won't have to fight. And if we do, we're going to be able to fight with the lowest cost and blood and treasure to the country. And the idea that that is not the obsessive focus of everyone who's in the leadership of the Department of Defense is criminal. And when you look at their public statements, again, we did a show on this when Secretary Austin first came in. And what he first talked about, he didn't talk about, we need to be the greatest. He didn't talk about, this is a potential threat. He didn't talk about, these are our deficiencies that we need to work on. I'll just leave it to everybody out there to go figure out what he talked about. And, and, and these disasters are going to continue to occur until we fundamentally change the attitude inside the Pentagon. And, you know, as our good friend Tim Lynch says, you know, organizations don't reform themselves from the inside. And unfortunately, to reform the entire Department of Defense typically is going to take military disaster. And you can survive a Pearl Harbor, right? You can survive a, a bull run. It's hard to imagine surviving the cyber space WMD potential sort of Pearl Harbor 9-11 that is out there on the horizon. So... I have, a, I have a question for you, and then I'll let you go. Because, again, this is just another installment of a theme that we see over and over and over again. And so, to me, if you focus on the Bonham Richard, you're missing, you're missing the target. The target is now much larger. It's Navy writ large. It is, a, it is a, the statement of a Navy junior officer who's a black shoe Navy person saying that this is the Navy. It is undisciplined. Right. It's 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 not proficient. It's not excellent. This is the Navy. My question, this is the second time we've seen a major investigation here in the last 60 days come to market. And at the helm of the of a ship is an incompetent officer that happens to be an aviator. Does the Navy need to change that? Do they need professional black shoe? You can have the XO be an aviator, and you can consult with him on flight deck ops and things like that. But the custodianship, the stewardship of this vessel, this American asset, needs to be by somebody who's in the business of being the steward of that asset and not somebody who just hops on kind of learns uh you know the nuances at the top and then goes someplace else because it seems like that fund that leadership at the top as general zinni said when he was a colonel you can't engineer around the person at the top 
They've got to have an idea. They've got to have a vision. They've got to be able to drive and inspire people. And when you're a novice in, in, in your own field, how do you do that? Is it time for the Navy to rethink that? Because this guy is a uh, gets to the Bonhomme Richard, in, and this is not atypical, but he gets to the Bonhomme Richard as the executive officer, I would say probably in 2017, 2018, fleets up to be the commanding officer in 2019. And, and going to sea is not the same as being responsible for, responsible for the ship at sea. And I was talking about, uh, when we were talking about the Somerset, I was talking about the, the first lieutenant of the USS Ranger, a guy named Mike O'Connor. And I wish I could track his ass down. I, I've looked for him, but I can't find him. But, I mean, he would quote you, manual, chapter, sentence of the things that they had to do, whether it was underway replenishment, whether it was refueling, whether it was we're welding shit to sponsons on the exterior of the ship. He knew his job. He was a career surface naval officer. Is it time the Navy go back to that? And, and you know, yeah, there are flight operations that go on, but we can bring on people that can help us support flight operations. Right, learning how to lead a ship is not a twenty-four month endeavor. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know this model came about when we when we first brought in aircraft carriers, and uh, you know we we sent a bunch of old guys to flight school so they could be pilots, so they could be the CEOs of these aircraft carriers to start out, and so they had, you know, Halsey had been on ships his whole career, became an aviator very late in life. And there were several like that. Um, yeah, I got to tell you, on the amphibs, it's fucking crazy to do it this way. It just is. Bring an F-14 or an F-14, F-18 pilot. I don't even know what this guy flew. I don't even care. But to bring them on, um, you know, I got... I got, uh, I did an entire deployment on, uh, on Kearsarge. So all the workups and the deployment, and I was the uh, BLTS-3. And uh, I spent not insignificant amount of time in the well deck, in lower V, in upper V, but I didn't know the nuances of that thing. And I was down there. I guarantee I was down there a hell of a lot more than the CO was. But if you can't, as a CEO of a ship, if you if someone describes a space and you can't bring that picture to your mind, then you're not competent. You you've got to be able to visualize that how it's connected with everything else on the ship. Yeah, I uh, you know it would it would that would be a thoughtful question for someone in Congress to ask. Just talking about leadership and the leadership development and the the CO career path, um, it would be a thoughtful question to ask. Now let me let me throw more let me throw more salt on your day, right? Um, I wouldn't even name I wouldn't even name the commanding officer, right? Um, he was a prior enlisted. Uh, aviation electronics technician on the E2C. 
He then went to aviation officer candidate school, becomes a, a helicopter pilot. And um, his first at-sea assignment is with Helicopter Anti-Submarine Squadron Light 37. So he's a helicopter pilot. This is the CEO of the ship? Yes. Yeah. So he flew ASW off of, uh, you know, destroyers. Um, maybe his career path took him on an amphib at some point. I, I'd be surprised. Um, maybe at one point in his career, he flew the mail over to a amphib at some point. I mean... And that person who spent yeah. that person who spent a lifetime in aviation is now going to come and be the XO for what eighteen months and the CO for for twenty four yeah. or something or, or maybe a year as the XO and then something. That's how little we think of this warship that that person yeah. is going to. And that's the system. And if you was, and uh, you wonder why ESG three walks on the pier and takes control of this thing. Yeah, if if he had been a CO of an ASW squadron, I mean, it's probably a hundred people. Um, and now he's in charge of, you know, even going to be the extra. Now you're to go from a, a, a CEO of that kind of squadron to the CEO of the ship is like two orders of magnitude different, maybe three orders of magnitude different. Right. Right. Uh, and, and again, what, what, what my point would be this, and, and I, I can hear my dad talking to me and, you know, when my dad used to say this, when we'd be driving home after a ball game and we'd be talking about the game and, Hey, you sent so and so up to pinch hit in the eighth inning. You know why? You know why did you pick him? And I remember one time the conversation turned to you know when you put people in situations, you have to think of right. Did they fail, or did you put them in a situation that they could not succeed in? And I remember that one time. One time he looked at me. And he said, "He said, look, so and so was hurt. I was saving so and so for the ninth inning. That was all I had." But I, I, I didn't have any, you know, for him, you know, to, to, to come through in that situation would have been, you know, nothing short of a miracle. But it was all I had. And so, but to me, when you take somebody and put them in charge of that kind of ass American warship that has literally no experience, you drop him in there as the XO for 12 months, maybe longer, and then tell him he's going to be the CO. And you're expecting excellence out of that? I have to tell you that, I mean, what, what we've seen on the Somerset here is tells, tells us that maybe there was a day when the people that flew for the United States Navy could do that. That ship has, has sailed. No longer the case. And I think that yeah. it, it, it is something that has to be looked at because – these are huge American assets and need to be stewarded by people who understand them, can fight them, and can do damage control on them. And clearly, um, that was not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think the CEO owns a big chunk of this blame, absolutely. But from the article, systemically, the Navy failed at everything. And that's what I say. I want to read the investigation just to see what went right, if anything. It seems like the other two ships on the pier may have had their head out of their ass, you know. Um, but it's probably not that hard. Hey, look over there. BHR is burning. Oh, we probably ought to do something so that we don't burn too. So it seems like somebody may have gotten that part right. But 
I want to read the investigation. Yeah, they both sent crews over, right? And again, some of the things that you read in there are stunning. The fire is spotted at approximately 12 minutes. Two hours on a fire. Exactly. Two hours. And then the first water that gets put on the fire is is an uncoordinated uh, effort. It's like the, uh, what was the destroyer off Pearl Harbor that that shot at the... uh, the mini sub at the mouth of uh, yeah. yeah it's it's that effort right there this uncoordinated all of a sudden takes it under fire you know the on the initiative of firefighters of San Diego County the first water goes on to the fire 2 hours yeah. after and let, let me let me just tell you let's, as, let's as, talk about the details it's a bad day already you're right. just bringing me down but man. any anybody who knows anything about a ship's fire knows there is the quick and the dead in those things you have to, you know, muster everybody and you have to throw the kitchen sink at it in the embryonic stages of the fire or you are going to be faced with possibly the loss of your warship, if that thing, because it is a floating industrial accident waiting to happen, right? And I, I know that because I lived on one and lived that. And and when you're in port, it is really, I used to have to go down to these meetings as, I mean, because we were guarding nuclear weapons, right? Now, I can neither confirm nor deny that there was ever any weapons on the ship, but when people would be doing maintenance adjacent to those spaces, I had to be a part of it. When they were running cables inside of certain um, secured hatches, I had to know that because if something happened, we had we I was charged with protecting those spaces. And me, the sergeants of the guard, right, the my my gunnery sergeant, the detachment gunnery sergeant, we'd we'd walk those spaces on a daily basis and look at who put down hoses that we didn't know about, where they were connected, did we have access to bust all that shit up if we had to set condition condition yoke or zebra, right? Yeah, how about that? I just dropped yoke and zebra on live on right. That's your business though, and import that's your only business. Because that's the only thing that's going on. There isn't shit that's going on other than people going to schools and other things like that. That damage control and and knowing your job. I mean, that's what it is. And so, sorry about that. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Will. Um, um, again, I if you if you only see the BHR in this, you're missing the larger point. This is, um, I would say, this is the number one crisis in the American military. And that is the general condition of the American Navy. So on that note, I'll see you tomorrow. All right. Yeah, I'd be be curious about, I mean, your thoughts on Colin Powell and his passing and particularly, um, you know, life's white hot spotlight hits him twice. Um, One, when he's a staff officer uh, in the the G3 of the AmeriCal division and the Me Lai investigation gets thrown to him. And then the second time, obviously, when he's uh, pushed as a member of the Bush administration, as the secretary of state to take uh, the intelligence to the United Nations. And, and that was really important because it was his credibility as a leader, right, that was that was critical in all of that. So be curious to get your thoughts on that tomorrow. All right. All right. See ya. Have, have, have a good day. So, sorry. I didn't do it. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. See ya. Yeah. I don't know rightly what to say to all of that. 
um, other than thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening. No, if you're at all the members, as Will said, right? You know, the American Navy. Our favorite Navy. And it's just painful to see another installment. And again, it's not like you miss it by a little bit. You miss it by forever. So uh, on that note, I will I will attach a couple different links um, to, to the story. And again, this is how the Navy handles this stuff in terms of You know, rolling it out with their comment and and whatnot. But I would tell you, there's not a whole lot of comment that you could make on this one. And um, yeah, if you just see the BHR in this, you're missing the point. You know, I've described the Navy as a service in decline, you know, and that's exactly what it is. And somebody's got to turn that around. And it's got to it's got to be operational excellence at the top of the list before anything else. So, I'm Mike McNamara of the Solomon Radio. Thanks for listening today. You have to give me a couple minutes, and this program will repeat itself. All right. So you'll probably hear a little bit of Steve Winwood. You might hear a little bit of BB King, but hang in there. This program will repeat itself momentarily. And uh, as I always say, um, don't be afraid to stick your hand out and help somebody. Um, There's so many people that are hurting. Um, I'm going to read you an email that I got last night. And I'll close with this. Hi. My name is, and I won't say his name. My wife and I lost our oldest son, 21 years old, on September 4th of this year. He was murdered. A friend of mine who was helped by you told me about the seminar. I'd really like to sign up for the next one. So don't be afraid to stick your hand out. You never know where it'll take you. You never know whose life you're going to impact. And so um, that's my life. And I'd encourage you to do the same. On that note, have a great day. I'm out. Yeah, remember, Steve Winwood and then B.B. King. And then as soon as I can get it saved, clipped, it takes me about a couple minutes. I'll be back. So... Until then, late.